Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra. As always, with James from Gunnerblog. James, welcome back. Thank you. I guess not as always, you know. I have no. been away here and there, but, you know, customarily. Mostly. As customary. Mostly with James from Gunnerblog. And, uh, yeah, thanks for having me back and well done to everyone who helps, you know, stem the tide. What's been going on? I go away for a couple of weeks and suddenly we can't hold a, a two-goal lead. What's happened here? I don't know. Maybe there's, you know, something has come into the world that's bad luck. Couldn't say. Um, I should say, of course, congratulations to you and your wife. Um, Hang on. Are you congratulating me or are you saying that my child is a jinx? Which is no, it? No, no, no. I am actually congratulating you. I'm going to get enough of that on Twitter. <laughs> um, How are you guys getting yeah. on? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you, man. Uh, we're all well, which is great. It's not without its challenges, as everyone who's had kids will know, but yeah. thoroughly enjoying it. Um and and hopefully it's you know given me some much needed perspective at what is a very stressful time to be an Arsenal fan. Yes, it certainly is. Um, for those, how's New York? Uh, New York is amazing as always, but it has taken a toll on me, uh, as you can hear from my voice. Um, I got up this morning and you know had as much coffee and orange juice as I. I could to try and lubricate the vocal cords, but they've taken a bit of a pounding uh, over the course of the last few days. We had a, a really great event um, at Stout um, on Saturday afternoon, after which we went down to O'Hanlon's, where I DJed until about 3 a.m. Um, got back to the hotel and got up again pretty much straight away to go back to O'Hanlon's and, and watch the game with all the Arsenal fans there. So it's wow. amazing. It's a great place, but... Um, I don't know that I'm feeling any better for being here physically. Maybe I just don't have the stamina for all this anymore. I need to pace myself. <laughs> it does sound like you've, you know, you've made the, you've made a full weekend of it. Let's put it like that. Uh, and you coming true. back today? Yes. Flying back uh, to Dublin later this afternoon. So I'm kind of looking forward to just getting back to the normal routine, a uh, bit of rest, recuperation, um, I don't know that I need to take two or three weeks off or anything, but a couple of good nights sleep would, would definitely help. Uh, that's for sure. Um, yeah. but no, it's you an amazing place. Yeah. <laughs> 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 it is, you know, it's always, uh, so much fun to meet people as well. You know, people who listen to the podcast and read the blog and are on our Patreon, our discord and everything else. And, uh, you know, it's been good hanging out with the the Arsenal Vision boys, with Elliot and Clive and Paul, and uh, Curtis mm -hmm. from Arsenal NYC here. So it's a it's a shame you couldn't make it. 
you know, everyone was asking for you and, and for uh, Tim Stillman as well as part of the Arsenal Vision crew. But I think we represented you as well as we could by drinking as much beer uh, as possible. Fantastic. That's good to hear. Was there any of that during recordings? Will I ever be able to hear that's kind of the consequences of all that drink beer drinking? Well, I mean, you're listening to my voice right now. That is the most. That's true, actually. Yeah, that is pretty. That's pretty clear evidence. Um, I I just was reminiscing about the time that you and I went to New York and did record a podcast, but sort of steadily became more drunk as it went on. I've never listened back to that, and I never ever will. No. It, it didn't quite happen that way. I, you know, I made sure that I, uh, I didn't have a drink until after we had completed the show. Um, compared to the yeah, last time, wise. Yes, yes. But that that wasn't our fault. People just kept putting shots of stuff in front of us. And what were we supposed to do? Exactly. Be rude. We're, on, we're only human. Mm. Um, so, tell me, Andrew, how, how was the experience of watching the game over in New York early in the morning on a hangover? Um, I mean, it was slightly challenging, but you know, once you're there, um, you settle in pretty well. Uh, there was a big crowd and very early on, it was obviously a very happy crowd. Um, Mm -hmm. it became somewhat more subdued as the, as the game went on and things transpired the way that they transpired, but you, you've got to. You got to admire the commitment of, you know, 300 Arsenal fans who are up at 7 a.m., half seven on a Sunday morning, straight to a bar, sinking pints and shots and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's certainly different uh, from what I do at home, but uh, no, it was great. It was great. Um, and there's something I think about when you're with a lot of people and when a game doesn't quite go the way you want the game to go, you're if not comforted by that, you're sort of a, in a problem shared as a problem halved kind of environment. Whereas if you're sitting at home stewing over it, um, as can often be the case, it, it, it might get under your skin a little bit more, but um, I guess we do I have to talk true. about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. I, I've lost count of the amount of times that I've left the Emirates stadium, uh, not so much this season, but in previous seasons, feeling flat or feeling down after a result. And then you think, well, I'll just stop by the pub and you know have a chat about it and have a drink and you know an hour later suddenly it's all a lot more palatable than it seemed at full time um but no getting away from it this was a a disappointing day really for arsenal to 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 drop a couple of points especially as you alluded to given the amazing position they were in with you know 10-15 minutes on the clock I'm really curious as to what you think about this, because obviously what happened last week against Liverpool, um, you know, it wasn't quite the same, but it was the same lead that we squandered, having played really well at the start. I thought what Mikel Arteta, there's my voice going, but I thought what Mikel Arteta said after about this, about how his team made a huge mistake. And I think Mm. we normally tend to think of mistakes as like somebody doing something you know, wrong in an instant or or whatever it might be. And there were perhaps a couple of moments of that. But how did you analyze what he said after the game about that huge mistake, which I think is basically not capitalizing on the fact that we went 2-0 up so early on? Yeah, I think he wanted Arsenal to go on and look for the third or, or the fourth and completely kill it. You know, it's an old adage, isn't it, that 2 nil is the most dangerous scoreline in football. But I think Arsenal have found that out to their cost over the past couple of weeks. Um, it, it's a really tricky one, this game. I, I think that 
I understand what he's saying, go and kill it. But I think at 2-0 up, away from home, what Arsenal have done so well for the majority of this season, it's not always been going and killing it. It's been controlling it. And control is about two things. It's about having possession of the ball and the territory and maintaining a threat. But it's also about decision-making in crucial moments. And, you know, the, the, the first goal that Arsenal conceded was the the most obvious example of a goal out of nothing that you will ever see. I mean, West Ham offered no threat. They weren't in the game. It was a silent stadium and we just gave them a lifeline. And it's it was pure carelessness, really. And I, for me, not to disagree with Arteta, but I think that is the real crime here. Of course, if you go and get a third and fourth goal, it does kill it. But I think that's easier said than done. I think what's more within our power within our control is to just maintain that lead, maintain that position. And the fact that we didn't do that, I think was criminal really against Liverpool. It's understandable to an extent, although Mm. they've had a bad season, you know, they are are a, a good team with some very good players, but West Ham this year are just not the same calibre aside and, and Arsenal from that position it should have been an insurmountable lead and to lose it like they did is really really disappointing no for sure uh, you know I've seen people talk about arrogance mm. um, as part of the reason why this happened and I don't know I struggle with that a little bit in the sense that you know they they just lost a 2-0 lead last week they know it can happen but like you said you know, getting to 2-0 and then getting the third, getting the fourth is a is a bit easier said than done. Um, if the huge mistake is not scoring the third or fourth goal, you know, we had we had chances maybe later in the game to to do that. Um but do you, yeah, I mean, I mean, the thing is, we make that if if that's the big mistake, we make that mistake mistake more weeks than not. You know, a third yeah. and fourth goal in any circumstances is is difficult. I, I just think, given the experience of Anfield. It felt of critical importance that Arsenal saw this half out with that lead intact. And I think as soon as they didn't, doubts inevitably started to creep in. And yeah, listen, there were some big concerning elements about this performance, but two moments will haunt me. I think, if mm. Arsenal don't go on to win the league. And one is the first goal we conceded because, as I said, it was completely out of nothing. And the other is the missed penalty because we were gifted a chance to reassert yeah. control and take the game back into our hands, really, um, right at the start of the second half. And we passed it up. And those are two huge moments, not just in this game, but in the title race, potentially. Well, let's let's talk about the... The first West Ham goal then as as one of the big mistakes. Thomas Partey, he performs that little, if you want to call it a trick, um, quite often, you know, where he kind of mm-hmm. scoops the ball beyond the player and and uh, you know, surges through the midfield. We've seen him do that. And I think we've talked a little bit about the the risk reward element of of how we play. Um, sometimes there is a risk, but to take those risks, um, you're often rewarded by you know, an attacking moment or, or a situation that you can take advantage of. There's talk of handball by Declan Rice. Um, 
I think it does hit his arm. But from what I understand, the rule is that unless they score directly from that handball, or if Declan Rice goes on to score the goal, VAR can take a look at it. If not, um, VAR has no means of intervening, whether they would have uh, anyway. Um, touch of good fortune there. I do think that uh, Paqueta, it's one of those where he dives over a player who's gone to ground. It isn't the contact, but when a player goes to ground, you give the attacker an opportunity to do that. We've seen those penalties given lots of times. They really frustrate me, actually, those particular ones. But again, that's maybe a, a moment where Gabriel might think he, he could have he could have done something different. Yeah, I I think it is a penalty. I mean, it's one of those where... Yes, there's a handball. Yes, Gabriel pulls his legs away. But if it was at the other end, I know what I would think. And unfortunately, once Gabriel's mm. committed there, it's almost too late to pull the legs out. You know, he has dived at Paqueta. And um, it, it's just, it's maddening, really, because, it, it, like I said, it felt so unnecessary. And I, there was a moment about five or ten minutes before the goal West Ham were terrible at this point in the game. They were nowhere. And Arsenal, you know, we skipped over the start Arsenal made, but they scored a beautiful goal and, you know, then capitalised on some bad West Ham defending to score another. And they looked the Arsenal that we've loved watching all season long. And there was a moment, I'm sure it was literally moments before the penalty, where West Ham was so bad, I couldn't believe that what happened. Aaron Ramsdale passed the ball out to Thomas Partey and there were two West Ham players near him, maybe Antonio and Paqueta, something like that. And he literally just let the ball run almost between his legs and turned away from two of them. And it was the easiest escape of a press you will ever see mm. in the Premier League. And I, in fact, I had I was in a WhatsApp group and everyone commented on it saying that was so bad from West Ham. And I and I don't know. I, I'm probably projecting too much here, but I I almost felt like it that was sort of evidential of it becoming too easy for Arsenal. And maybe in that moment where Partey attempted that turn, he had just dropped his concentration level a fraction. And I don't want to come down hard on him particularly because we ask him to take risks, and sometimes when you take risks, it doesn't go your way, and there are consequences. And and this was mm. one. Um, but yeah, I just thought that, you know, that, those two moments kind of told that story of maybe focus not being quite what it might be, it becoming too easy, Arsenal slipping up and suddenly they're back in the game. And and I think it was Declan Rice who closed party down and it's mm. interesting, he's a player who's been talked about in relation to Arsenal. I thought in that first half, he was the only West Ham player offering anything, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a, a little bit of harrying and suddenly... It's 2-1 and the crowd are enlivened and awake. And yeah, and I guess as Arsenal fans, we all have that slight feeling of unease and discomfort. But at that point in the game, we'd been so dominant and so good and we had so long to go. I just thought, oh, well, I imagine we'll just reassert ourselves. But it Mm. didn't happen quite like that. No, I mean, you think back to when we played West Ham at the Emirates and they went ahead um, yeah. before we turned it around and, and went on to win 3-1. And I guess maybe we're at a point of the season. By the way, I didn't mean to sort of skip over the start and how good we were. I was going to come back no. to that because I think it is worth talking about. But I do wonder if we're at a point in the season where the psychological 
aspects of what is happening in terms of pressure for points, the closeness of uh, the chasing team, the prize on offer, the, the you know you get one more game, one more game, and you know your margin for error, so to speak, is is diminishing. But I do wonder if if like at this business end of the season, there are more psychological aspects to explain why a team uh, did what we did in in this game against West Ham, where we were commanding, playing brilliantly, scored great goals, and then ended up with only a point rather than three. You know, we've talked about maybe the the age of the team or mm-hmm. the the youth of the team maybe being a positive in the sense that they haven't been through something like this before, so they don't quite know what to be scared of. But I also think that just the sheer pressure of going for the Premier League title starts to manifest itself in ways that you you don't necessarily expect. I think that's a reasonable assertion to make. I think, you know, we're experiencing it as well as fans. These games and these points feel like they matter 10 times more than the same number of points earlier in the season. You know, three points versus one point in August is, okay, uh, we'd prefer three. At this point, it feels life or death. It feels critical. And that must be in the players' minds too. You've also got to bear in mind we're in a situation where pretty much from now, from Liverpool until the end of the season, we play after Man City. So, you know, we're always aware of them breathing down our neck. Maybe that has some kind of psychological impact. Um, Whatever it is, it is concerning. And actually, you know, there'll be a lot of narrative around Arsenal's performances over the past couple of weeks. Is it pressure? Are they, you know, crumbling, faltering, bottling? I think there's Mm. something else that, um, that needs to be talked about, which is, are they defending well? And have they been defending well in recent I think, weeks? I think this is really interesting because, you know, one one thing, um, well, it's not one thing, I'm sure people have talked about it. I just haven't seen it maybe because I haven't been as online as, as uh, I would normally be. But mm. let's say, for example, you know, we were going into a game like this with Eddie and Kedia starting up front and Reese Nelson as one of our wingers. Right, mm-hmm. so you take out a, a significant percentage of your your first choice front three. Are you going to be the same team? Probably not. We're playing nope. this game with fifty percent of our first choice back four gone. Sinchenko wasn't there, and we know um, how he impacts this team. I think um, we had some conversations yesterday about Thomas Partey. And whether or not he missed Sinchenko more than anybody because he's got that player standing uh, quite close to him in midfield, whereas Kieran Tierney, you know, isn't that player and doesn't do what Zinchenko does. Rob Holding, um, you know, at centre half ahead of William Saliba, I don't think in and of himself Rob Holding has been, you know, particularly bad, but I think you miss your first choice player. And I think the the impact of missing those players becomes evident over a, a number of games rather than in one individual performance, for example. So I don't think the team... I can't, I can't, maybe I'm getting this wrong. I'm not going to say that the 
the players don't trust each other. I just wonder if collectively we don't trust ourselves to play in the same way with Holding and Tierney that we do with Saliba and Zinchenko. And, you know, when you talk about controlling games and controlling possession, I think we do that much better with those two guys in the team. I definitely think that's true. Um, I, I also think that there have been some defensive worries that kind of even predate the absence of those players. You know, if you think back to mid-February, two goals against Aston Villa, a couple of weeks later, two goals conceded against Bournemouth, two against Sporting, um, you know, conceded against Palace and Leeds at home when we didn't really need to, two at Liverpool, two at West Ham. I just think some of the defensive security that we had, and a lot of that is linked to individual players, definitely, but I also think from a collective perspective, has dropped away. I don't think it's coincidence that in the last few weeks we've been talking up the form of Aaron Ramsdale and in the first half of the season uh, there were plenty of games where he barely had to make a save, you know? And I, mm. I just think we've lost a little bit of our solidity, our structure um, and our security at the back and that can be very, very costly in this league. Um, and it, it cost Arsenal very dear yesterday. Um, I mean, do you have any grand theory on why that might be the case? Or is it just, you know, this is happening or it can happen during a season? It, it's now happening at a, a quite unfortunate part of the season, timing-wise. Yeah, I think so. I, I, think, um, I think there are things like set pieces, which, you know, have become more of a problem for Arsenal uh, of late, whether that's teams adapting to our tactical plan there or, you know, finding little gaps in it. Um, I think personnel is obviously one. Saliba and Zinchenko, they bring so much composure. It's You know, it's almost not so much the defensive side of the game. Obviously, Saliba, you'd rather have him one-on-one in the channel than Rob Holding, and that becomes mm. a, a potential weakness for opposition to exploit. But it's, it's what they bring on the ball uh, as well, just the, the way in which that enables you to kind of dominate the opposition because they have so much security and coolness. Uh, I think without that, you know, we, we really lack it. I saw, you know, your your friend of mine, everybody's favourite pundit, Gary Neville, uh, talking after the game yesterday on Sky. And he was saying, you know, in that last 20 minutes, I saw Arsenal defenders kicking the ball away and, you know, putting it out into touch and just, you know, knocking it up in the air. And I thought, mm, that's not a good sign. And I thought, well, that's a fair enough observation. But you have to contain within that observation the fact that it is half of their first choice back four. And we are yeah. missing two players who've been absolutely instrumental in getting us to this point. Um, you know, it technically, psychologically, have been huge, huge contributors. And when you think about the fact that Arsenal maybe have become a bit more haphazard in possession at the back, you have to look at their absence as part of it. So it's, yeah, there are a multitude of factors, but... Um, and they're not excuses, you know. I think any team that's 2-0 up in any game should really should win it. You know, we, we, I think we're pretty clear on that. But um, we're just trying to unpick why this is happening. Well, let's go back to the start then, because I think we should point out that, that um, we did start really well and we scored a couple of really good goals. Um, I know you could maybe look at some of the West Ham defending, but 
Gabriel Jesus with another goal since his return from injury. Martin Odegaard with another goal. Is that him in double figures now? I can't. Um, Could can't well be. And I, and I think I think the Jesus thing. It's it's funny, you know, because we haven't won the last couple of games. We're not talking about it, but. He's having a real impact and goal-scoring impact again, which, who knows, could yet be vital. Yeah. It's a sort of a weird one as well, though, because uh, I know he is coming back from the injury and everything else, but, you know, when we're trying to win a game, we don't end um, with him on the pitch or Odegaard yeah. on the pitch as well. Um, and I know Mikolaj had substitutions of taking... Yeah, I th- I, look, I don't think Odegaard played particularly well. Certainly not as well as we have seen him play, but I'm just looking at like who is in this team, who is on the pitch, who could make the pass, who could find the moment. Um, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I feel like since he's arrived, Odegaard has had a couple of late moments in games um, that that have been really, uh, really positive. So the substitutions are always under the spotlight when you don't win. Um but the moment, I think, as you said, uh, that might haunt us and uh, the team and maybe Bukayo Saka, I don't know. I mean, although I would back him uh, to to not get too despondent about this is, is the penalty in the second half. And I think yeah. it's very easy to say if it goes 3-1, I don't think we lose that game. Um. No, it was a gift, really. You know, mm. a chance to regain our lead, regain our composure in the moment. Um, I have to say, I, I wasn't confident about it. Uh, Why? I don't know. Maybe just maybe it's the pressure getting to me, Andrew. Maybe just the pessimism of the supporter. But mm. um, I, I didn't. I didn't feel sort of like, yes, this is a goal. Um, and, you know, God love Bukayo, it's a bad penalty. Uh, it is, yeah. It's one of the bad ones. So, I mean, I, I saw Jesus, uh, Jesus with the ball and thought, mm, I don't yeah. feel great about that. And then I saw Bukayo Saka with the ball and I felt pretty confident because his record from the spot for us has been has been yeah. really good. I think this is the first one he's missed for us. So He scored you know, five in the interim. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't feel a lack of confidence when, when he picked up the ball. I don't know how much hindsight applies to that because I think there is a natural, oh, God, he's going to miss this, isn't he? Blah, blah, blah. That yeah, you have sure. deep down somewhere and then it happens and you go, I knew it. I knew it. But um, yeah, it's, <laughs> I am, it's a bad I am a genius. I have the vision, the sight. Uh, yeah. yeah, I know what you mean. But it, it, it's, um, I don't know, Andrew. It, it was just such a brilliant... He knew as well it was a big moment. You could see it in his face afterwards. And it's the risk you take, isn't it, as a penalty taker? As Arteta said, everyone who takes misses them. Uh, and I guess it doesn't miss matter if you miss by a millimetre or a couple of yards, as Saka did. It, if it's Yeah, it, they're just massive moments. I hope it doesn't affect him moving forward. Uh, I don't think it will because we know how resilient he is, how tough he is, mm. how determined he'll be to bounce back. But in the context of the game, it's yet another one of those things that just gives the crowd a lift and gives them some belief that there might be something there for them on the day. And what was it? A couple of minutes and they had the ball in the net at the other end. I mean, talk me through this goal because um, 
I haven't watched a lot of replays. I can remember us making a clearance, the ball coming back in. Was it Bowen who sort of got behind Gabrielle? Um, mm. Ramsdale almost made a save. Um, but again, another one of those sort of moments out of nothing, particularly painful when you've uh, missed the chance to go 3-1 up. Yeah, it, it really is kind of out of nothing. I think what happens is Gabrielle makes a clearance, a headed clearance, and um, basically chases up, you know, rushes out of his hole, as it were, and vacates the space, which Bowen is very much in. Uh, I don't think Gabrielle knows he's there. And then it's just the most simple of almost hoofed balls back into the box. Arsenal offside trap hasn't been lined up correctly. Bowen's completely clear and he sticks it in the near post. I mean, Carragher on commentary uh, said he felt Ramsdale had to save that. I I think that's a bit harsh, to be honest. It's like those shots that hit down into the ground, I think are pretty tricky to read. Um, But defensively, I mean, maybe the goalkeeper could do better. Certainly defensively, we could do better. It's really sloppy, really, really sloppy. And yeah. And and from that point on that, you know, again, you sort of console yourself and you think, but there's half an hour to play and Arsenal Mm. are much, much better than West Ham. And I've already shown that at points in the game today. Um, Surely they can kick on, but I just felt you know we never really threatened to do that. And and on the point of the substitutions, I guess this is kind of the nature of substitutions. But I couldn't help but feel we just ended the team with a much worse eleven on the field than the one we started with. I I think that's right. I I honestly think that's right. I mean, when you're putting Reese Nelson on, I know he had that moment against Bournemouth, but it feels like a a bit of a hail mary. You know, can, can he do it again? I mean, what what do you make of taking um, Partey off? Was it Partey and Jesus going off? Yeah. At the same time, you know, yeah. two of our our biggest, most important players. I get that there are certain fitness issues with Jesus because he's coming back from the injury and and the surgery and everything else. But I can't help but think there's something that we're trying to nurse Partey through. Um, you know, he had a physio go with him on international duty, which is probably a big fucking clue there. Um, but you know, you're 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 desperate for three points. <laughs> three points. I'm not getting emotional. My voice is terrible. Sound like, I bet I, that's probably what Arteta sounded like in the dressing room after the game. Yeah. I imagine. <laughs> but you know what? What do you make of that substitution? Because if he's 100 percent fit, surely he doesn't come off. The party one. What I think was more understandable because he was on a booking. They were both on bookings, mm. um, but Partey in his position, I think that's maybe more of a risk. And he had had, you know, I think not particularly good game. I, I, I felt that after the mistake, he you could see in his eyes that he his confidence was a bit rattled by that moment. And I've seen it happen to him one other time this season. It was at Selhurst Park on the opening day. Um, the crowd were really on his back and he was rattled and it affected his performance. And I saw it a bit at, at West Ham uh, yesterday. Um, doesn't happen often, but it can happen. So so the Jorginho one, I could make more sense of. The Jesus one, listen, I, I'm not a physio. I don't have the medical knowledge to back this up. My gut feeling as a fan is that uh, if there was any way Jesus could stay on that pitch, Arsenal needed him. 
They needed him yesterday. He was arguably our best player uh, in the first hour of the game. And I think as soon as we lost him, um, I felt less confident about our chances of, of going on to win it. Yeah. And we've talked, haven't we, about wanting or needing to get contributions from the from the bench and from the depth of the squad. But I don't know. I did worry or wonder a little bit about the Vieira for Odegaard one, particularly when we were just about to take a free kick into the box, if I recall correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think Vieira should be able to deliver a good a good ball in that sense. But the substitutions didn't help and Arsenal couldn't really get back into the game when it went 2-2. And I think that might come back to what we were talking about, about the the pressure and the the ability to cope with knowing that if you drop points it could be it could be really damaging in the context of your your title challenge and you know there there are various things to worry about uh in this game throwing away a 2-0 lead i suppose is the biggest of them but one of the features of arsenal this season and we talked about this quite a bit is the ability to respond to setbacks to moments that didn't go well whether it was a bad result or even as we we talked about you know, when something went wrong in a game, they were capable of turning it around or reacting in a really positive way. And I didn't really see that reaction once it went 2-2. No, and I mean, another player who came off was Martinelli, I think I'm right in saying, who has been in blistering form. And again, when his number went up, I sort of, you know, was surprised at that. Mm. Um, You know, who are the three summer arrivals whose mentality and quality has transformed everything at Arsenal, Zinchenko, Saliba and Jesus. And we finished the game without any of those men on the pitch. And Mm. it may be a case of being too simplistic and putting two and two together, but I do think that's critical. You know, you saw Zinchenko on the sidelines kicking every ball. I would have liked to have had him on the pitch kicking a few. Um, And I just think... That, yeah, it, it, the, whatever Arteta was trying in the last half hour. Of course, if if we nick a goal, he's a genius and he gets all the credit. But by the same mm. token, when it doesn't work, you've got to take the criticism. And I thought that he got a lot of those changes wrong. Um, I they, I just felt that if you were West Ham, you'd be happy to see those men coming off the pitch. Um, and I'm trying to think if we had chances. I mean, there was one for Jesus moments before he was substituted where he slid in and he almost got on the end of it. Mm. And there was one... It was good defending, Saka- I think. Yeah, there was one Saka counter-attack where he kind of didn't pick a pass and ended up with quite a tame shot. Do you remember that one? Mm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, you know, it wasn't his best game either, Bukayo, you know, obviously missed penalty aside. Um but beyond that, that was kind of it. That was kind of it. And, you know, Trossard's been excellent at Arsenal. So you, And there was, you know, justifiable debate a couple of weeks ago of who should start. But I just felt we lost our way in this game. We lost our way. I mean, where does it leave us now? Um, because I always felt that there was going to be a game where it didn't go well. I think everybody was expecting that to happen somewhere in these last eight or nine games, right? But you maybe want it to happen, uh, not want it, you don't want it to happen at all, but 
I don't think you look at West Ham as as the place where it's going to happen. And I think that makes it feel even more painful, you know, losing um, two points, dropping two points, dropping, you know, points from a a position in a game where you're two nil up. That's, that's always going to hurt. But I think with all due respect to West Ham, who are, you know, barely above the relegation zone this season, these are the games where you feel like if you're going to go and win the title, you know, these are the ones where you need to start or not start, but rack up the three points, move on and look ahead to the more difficult uh, encounters ahead. Yeah, I think that that's the thing. It doesn't have to be terminal. You know, we are still top. We still have a lead. It just really reduces that margin for error massively. Um, And I think anyone who had sort of dared go through the fixtures and think, okay, well, win, draw, possible loss. I think everyone would have had this game down as one that Arsenal needed to win. And in Mm. a funny way, I I think people may argue with this, but I I sort of think if Arsenal had turned up and just not performed and got rolled over by a a bullish physical West Ham, you know, conceded a couple of goals and lost the game and Arsenal had just not been themselves at all, in a funny way, I, I would sort of find it easier to live with because you just go, right, that was awful. Consign that to the bin. Mm. Every season you can have a game like that. Next week we go back again, we get back on the horse. I think what will make this linger with me, haunt me is the word I, I used earlier on, is that it was so within our control that we had. there were two points there. We had, you know, we had our hands on them and then we let them slip through our grasp Mm. and successive weeks. Like I say, I think it is much more understandable at Anfield than it is in this case, but just think what those four points might have done for us. You know, it's, it is painful to think that we have let them pass by. And Mm. I think it's painful too. Like, it's kind of on us, you know, like it's, it's all very, very well sort of raging against VAR or dodgy referee or whatever it might be. But when it comes to these points, I think we can only look at ourselves and that's mm. less pleasant. <laughs> I think. Well, yeah, for sure. It's much better when it's somebody else's fault and there's a sense of injustice or whatever it is. I think uh, Opta put out the stat, that Arsenal have given up a two-goal league, uh, two-goal lead in consecutive Premier League games for the first time, and they're only the fifth side in the competition's history to do so. And as always, there is a word at the end of the Opta Joe treat, which is, which is pressure. And I think that does manifest itself in unusual ways, and it does make weird things happen. And you know, I'm sort of torn between. Uh, absolutely ruining what what has happened in the last two games and sort of accepting to a certain extent that these things can happen towards the end of a season. Um, mm-hmm. I've seen it happen before with other teams, with Arsenal, where at the business end of the, the season, a result that you do not expect comes along and there's no real reason for it. And maybe it is pressure or maybe it is um you know, an anxiety that, that runs through you. Um, I don't know. I, I, I still think um, that the game at the Etihad becomes 
the most important one. Um, I don't want to tell, you know, do that thing where you go, if you told anyone this is where we would be at this point of the season, blah, 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 because it doesn't make anybody feel any better. Um, but I'm still trying to hang on to that a little bit, you know, from the perspective of how well this team have done for most of this season. If there is a like a real blip, um, hopefully it's a, it's a short one. And hopefully this is... Um, this is, uh, you know, we've got a chance on Friday night, rather, to to sort of put things right pretty much straight away. Home game against the team, the bottom of the table. Um, I mean, <laughs> I don't want to jinx anything by any means, but that feels like the kind of game that you could go on and win and hopefully restore a little bit of confidence and rhythm um, after a couple of games where, where you've lost that. Yeah, we could do with about 10 goals for goal difference as well. So. Yeah. I hope Elliot finally gets his Arsenal 10, uh, Southampton nil. Um, listen, you know what? We were in the pub yesterday in O'Hanlon's and it's 2-0 up after uh, whatever it was, 10 minutes. And uh, everyone's turning around to Elliot going, this is it, Elliot. This is the day it's going to be Arsenal 10, West So there you go. So let's blame all those people. That's who we can blame. Those guys, right. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think, I do think it's important um, to sort of, contextualize the degree of failure here that we're talking about. We are talking about a draw away in a North London derby. It is in context, a massive disappointment and a disaster to draw from a two no winning position. But when you're up against Man City in a title race, what is being demanded of you is effectively perfection. And I can't, be too hard on this team for being less than perfect. You know, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. It, it is incredibly uh, demanding what's being asked of them. And, and if they fall short, it will be kind of tragic because they will have outstripped so, so many title-winning teams from previous years, including Arsenal title-winning teams, almost whatever happens at this point in terms mm. of the sheer number of games they've won, goals they've scored, uh, and it may not be good enough. And I have tremendous sympathy with, well, obviously I'm an Arsenal fan, but I have tremendous sympathy with the players and with the club in that position. Anything less than perfect feels like it is not going to be good enough against the City team. And that is a mad situation you know but that's the reality of what we're competing with as well um, yeah oh yeah and that's what Liverpool have been up against for years mm. and, and they know all about it and I've had so many messages in the last 24 hours from people I know who support Liverpool saying welcome to our world where you draw a game and suddenly you feel like it's gone uh, mm. that that's that's the kind of the nature of what we're up against here. and the, But the reality is, as you say, it doesn't, it's not gone. It, it makes that Man City game all the bigger. But I think it was true before the West Ham game that if we won all our games and drew at the Etihad, we would be champions. That remains the case. Um, it's a huge mm. ask, but it remains the case. Well, let's hope they've got this kind of, um, what you would say uncharacteristic nonsense out of their system because they haven't been doing this all season because otherwise we wouldn't be, we wouldn't be where we are. Um, no. 
So yeah, let's hope they can get that out of their system and uh, and do what we need to do against Southampton on on Friday night. Um, is there anything else from uh, the game or from uh, what happened that you want to talk about in part one before we do some questions? Uh, not really. No, just pay a quick okay. tribute to. Um, Tottenham having their own 95th minute winner against Bournemouth, <laughs> albeit for Bournemouth. Um, that was so funny. That was so yeah. funny. Oh my uh, goodness. I, I laughed a lot. Do a last minute that- winner in a 3-2 game against Bournemouth, but make it Spursy. And they really did that. So fair play. I, I, I it was on here in the, uh, in the hotel room, in my hotel room, and it went to 2-2 and I was like, oh, fuck. I'll just turn it off because, you know, I, I don't like to see them have any tiny bit of happiness. Even a draw is too much happiness uh, for for me to uh, to live with. Uh, walked out of the hotel and I, ju- I got text from Clive uh, and it was just spurs with laughing emojis. Uh, so I knew exactly what had happened, which is brilliant. Yeah. So, uh, well done, Bournemouth. Okay, uh, we'll take a little break here. We will come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer the questions that you sent to us on Twitter at GunnarBlog and at Arsblog. Also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. And the first question uh, comes from the Discord, and we had a lot of questions about, about this. Um, this one is from Bouncy Sean, who says, Badly morning, gents. What the fuck is going on with Smith Rowe? We were desperate hmm. for a goal yesterday, so why not bring on our top scorer from last season? I think he was the second top scorer, but still an excellent point. There was a bit on the TV footage, wasn't there? It was about 76, 77 minutes, and he's sitting on the bench. He's not even warming up. And i got to say, some alarm bells started ringing there in my head about that. Yeah, it's a curious one. And from what I'm told, you know, Emil Smith Rowe is fit. He's available. Uh, he is ready to play, uh, and he's not getting the chances at this point in time. Um, it, it, it is curious, actually. I, I know Nelson obviously had that brilliant moment against Bournemouth, but he was a substitute uh, who came on for Smith Rowe in that game. Uh, if I recall correctly, yeah, and yeah. 
Um, Smith Rowe appeared to be ahead in the pecking order at that time. Not so now. Uh, I like Fabio Vieira as a player, but I'm not sure there's enough sort of... I'm not sure he's that far ahead of Smith Rowe to be getting as many more minutes as he's getting um, at this point in time. And it does make me wonder about the player's future. You know, we, we sort of say it about Kieran Tierney. Oh, he's not getting picked. He, he, maybe he's earmarked for a summer departure. Um, I am beginning to wonder about Emil Smith-Rowe at this point in time. What yeah, do you me think? Too. Me too. I think it, it suggests that there's something not quite right. Um, I don't know what, whether it's... Um, whether it's how he's training, whether something has, you know, happened between him and the manager, um, whether Mikel Arteta just doesn't trust Emil Smith-Rowe on the pitch anymore, I, I don't quite know. But I, I really found it hard to understand why a player who was often quite effective coming off the bench last season as well, scored yeah. goals from off the bench, sat down for the entire 90 minutes of that game yesterday when we needed something or someone to step up and provide us with a, a bit of magic, a bit of a moment, a goal, you know, even maybe to change the way that we play. Because I think Smith Rowe has some qualities that, that, you know, you don't necessarily get from some of the other players, you know, that ability to, to burp, uh, burst between the lines, um, you know, in the final third, um, the quality of his movement, uh, you know, he's quicker than people expect as well. So, like I said, it really got some alarm bells ringing in my head um, because I think, on paper anyway, he should be coming on ahead of Reese Nelson, and I agree he should be coming on ahead of, of Fabio Vieira um, in any normal circumstance. The fact he didn't get on the pitch at all suggests that there's something, something's not right there. Um, I don't know what, but it's pretty obvious that there's something, right? I think all season long, I've kind of laboured under this idea that Smith Rowe would get his moment. You know, mm. Trossard has had moments. Reese Nelson, of course, had his. Um, he's not going to get a moment if he doesn't get a chance. And right now, it feels like he's, you know, pretty far down the pecking order and not really in contention. It almost feels like he's been written off for the season and, yeah. you know, come back after a full preseason, or if, if at all. Um, but it's a strange one and it's a pretty swift uh, fall from grace because he was in the first mm. 11 for much of last season it's hard to understand yeah, yeah. Um, maybe we'll find it. out a bit more information which might make it make sense but on a, mm. like I said on paper on purely footballing terms if he's fit and he's not getting on the pitch um, it's, it's hard to make any sense of it beyond there being something that we don't know. Maybe he went to Paris, but he didn't come back within the allotted time frame. <laughs> uh, he'd be out of the squad entirely there. That's true. I think and we'd probably know all about it. Um, stripped of the number 10 shirt. Uh, Terry Dunn says, is it safe to go on Twitter yet? I haven't been on since West Ham equalised. Of course it's not, Terry. Stay away. Preserve your sanity. <laughs> um, 
what about this? It's pretty straightforward. Teton Guna says, will the title be decided at the Etihad? I think if Man City win, you could probably say yes, it will be decided yeah. at the Etihad. I mean, if Arsenal get a result there, then no. Um, and I'm hoping that we can... I'm hoping that we can get a result there and, and keep things going. Um, people said kind of the same about what happened when Man City came to the uh, to the Emirates and won and went top, and it was very much a case of, well, that's it now. This is what's going to happen. City will just kind of uh, extend their lead, and it didn't happen. It went the other way. Is the game at the Etihad absolutely crucial? Yes. Is it necessary for Arsenal to get something from that game? Yes. Whether it's a win or a draw, we have to get something from that game. I think if we don't get anything from that game, then then that's it. Um, but I don't think, obviously, uh, when, when it comes down to points, that the game at the Etihad will be the one where the title is decided uh, in and of itself. But uh, if we don't get something from that game, we're, I think we're toast. What about you? I think I agree with that. I don't think we can win it at the Etihad anymore. I mean, obviously not literally, but I think there was a point in time where we had a kind of five-point lead, eight-point lead. If we went with that to the Etihad and, you know, got something, I think that would have as good as done it for us. Um, mm. I think now we we can't win it there because... We've got too many other difficult games and our form is too much of an unknown at this point in time. I think we can lose it there probably. Like I think if I'm with you, I think if they win that, very difficult to stop them. Uh, I just think the psychological swing, which already sort of swung a bit in their favour yesterday, would just be enormous if they win that one. Um, And it would take something pretty astonishing for it to not go that way. So... I think we sort of, yeah, I, I, I don't think we can win it there. I think we can lose it. But I like this comment from Dan Massey, 10, on the Discord. And Dan said, Anfield 89, Old Trafford 98, and 2002, Etihad 23. If we're going to win this league, we will do it the way we always have. Um, I mean, I think there's something to that, you know, that 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 we, um, we don't always make it easy for ourselves. And we have won titles in the past where we've had results where you think, oh, fuck. It's gone now, or it's going to be very difficult for us to to deal with that. Um, I'm sort of half banking on the the sort of parallels between 89 and this season and this team and the way it's been built and the managers and the discipline and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, there are a couple of results on the run into Anfield 89, which meant that that game became... Uh, so important um you know i think there's there are all kinds of parallels when you consider how good liverpool were back then is sort of the equivalent of of manchester city now so i'm hanging desperately onto that kind of stuff and um you know i would prefer if we did do it the easy way but um doesn't seem to be uh, in our dna here's a, a question from josh on twitter at josh mill 96 uh it's quite clear that tierney can't play the left back role like zinchenko can if Zinchenko is out in the future, do you think Arteta may start Xhaka there instead? Um, he sort of finished with that yesterday, didn't he? Um, mm. 
Well, the noise around Zinchenko yesterday was that it's a very, very minor injury and he should be back in time for the game against Southampton on Friday. Um, now, we have heard that with Zinchenko before and it's sort of run on and on. So let's hope that's true. Um, would he consider putting Shaka in there? Well, he's done it a lot in the past. Um but I don't think there's anyone sort of banging down the door to come in and play Shaka's position. So I'm going to say no. I'm going to say that he, w- he would stick with Tierney. Um, mm. What do you think? I know that you're not a fan of Shaka at left back, traditionally. No, traditionally not. Um, but, and I don't think he would play him there either. But I do think what we're seeing, as much as I, I, I love Kieran Tierney, I think the limitations to his game, you know, are are evident um, in possession, on the ball. He just doesn't quite give you enough. Um, and I think that's kind of, there's always been a, a touch of, uh, how would I put it? Um, he can be a bit industrial at times, like just lump it clear rather yeah. than um, back himself technically to take the ball down and do something with it. But there was an interesting question here from... Uh, Ant also on Twitter, who's at Ant underscore Walter three. And he said, is Trossard's form too good to just be making sub appearances for 20 or 30 minutes? It feels like one of our most technically secure players right now. And he started six of our seven games in the recent title winning run. The difficulty is who he replaces, you know, would deploying Shaka at left back maybe give you the option to play Trossard where Shaka normally plays? And I'm not saying that's you know what I want to happen, but there is yeah. a bit of a jigsaw puzzle that that might just come together. Yeah, I think there are opponents you could do that against. I've seen a couple of people also positing, you know, could you play Saka where Shaka plays? Um, I'm sure it'll be something that Arteta will be considering the whole Shaka question and how to play Zinchenko. I mean, his first choice will be to get Zinchenko back on the pitch, but mm. um, yeah, I don't know. It, we know that his tendency is to make as few tweaks as possible to a system that you know conventionally works. Uh, I feel like that might be a change too far. Um, and, and, and Arteta in his position will think, well, I don't need to really go back to the drawing board here. The team have shown in the first half hour of the last two games what they can do, how good mm. they can be. Um, they just need to maintain that. Uh, obviously, Zinchenko you know, played at Anfield, but not at West Ham. So that is a distinction. But I think his focus will just be on getting plan A to work again. I mean, a, a lot of people have asked about William Saliba, Scott Mack, seven said, how important is having Saliba in the team for the must win at City? Obviously, no one knows his limitations at the moment, but if a quarter zone shot can get him on the pitch, do you risk it? I do have the sense that it is kind of, you know, if they're saving him for anything or protecting him for anything or trying to get him fit for anything, it must be that game, right? Yeah. I mean, he has been one of our, more important players this season. And we've talked about the drop-off, you know, when he's not in the team, um, similar with, with Zinchenko and Tierney. Um, I think there, there's obvious drop-off between Saliba and and Rob Holding. Um, I mean, I don't know anything about Saliba. 
Yeah. I don't really feel that confident that he's going to be back anytime soon. They're making positive noises or they're not allowing any negative stories to get out there. Mm. But how long ago did this injury take place? I know it was um, in the sporting game that he went off, but I think uh, Mikel Arteta talked about how it was an injury that he picked up in the Fulham game. So what's how long has he been out now? A month? And he's not yeah. even back because there was an international break, of course. He hasn't even been back you know, training outside. So while they might be desperately hoping he can get back for the Man City game, I do wonder just how realistic it is if he's not out training properly yet, can they throw him in after whatever it might be, four or five weeks without playing into a game like the kind of game that you're going to get against Manchester City? So if there's a pleasant surprise about Saliba... I'll be the first one to jump up and down, but I wouldn't put I wouldn't put my last dollar on it, to be honest. Well, also you run the risk, don't you? If you, you you know you jab him up, you get him out there for the city game, and ten minutes into it, he's coming off and he's out for the rest of the season. Um, it's a difficult one, but I think the city match is about as close to a final as you can get without it being a final. Oh. You know. And yeah. for a final, you do everything you can to get your best team on the pitch. I think that will be kind of looming large in Arsenal's mind. And and, it, and if it doesn't go our way against City, it wouldn't surprise me. And Saliba doesn't make it. It wouldn't surprise me enormously if they were like, the right thing for this player is for him to, you know, rest or have surgery or whatever it is. Um, mm. I don't know. You know, I think there's every chance... There's as much chance we don't see him this season as we do. You know, I, th- I think it's really delicate. And I think were Arsenal not embroiled in this title race, um, they might well have written Saliba's season off already. I think it's the circumstance that's making them think, can we get this guy out on the pitch? Mm. Um, and it's a risk, but he'll desperately want to play. He'll desperately want to play. Maybe this week will will tell us something if he's if he's back out there a little bit. Um, yeah, It'd but, be a great boost to see, wouldn't it? Um, it would, yeah, it would. Um, get that first choice eleven out there because you know I think when they all play, the record is very good. Um, the question is like how quickly can he rediscover form or or find his rhythm? Um, you know, there was a little bit of a question at, at our event the other night. Um, where someone talked about Saliba's post-World Cup form, where it did take him maybe two or three games just to get back to where he was because he'd spent, you know, a month not playing. That's true. That's another aspect of of bringing him back, you know? Yeah, very true. Mm. I I just think back to that FA Cup game and although City won it in the second half um, and got their goal in the second half, we coped much better with the threat of Haaland with Saliba on the pitch uh, than we did in the first half with, with Gabriel on holding. So I do think it would be really significant, but we'll have to wait and see. We'll see. Okay. I think it's my question, is it? So um, yeah, go on. Here's philosopher um, who says, morning chaps, why are people fixated on the idea that Arsenal can't handle pressure? The past two games, I was nervous beforehand, but the players appeared to thrive. The games went off track when they began to look comfortable. Can this team handle a lack of pressure? Hmm. 
That's a really smart question, I think, because Arsenal have, I think, thrived in some pressurised situations all season long. Look at the late winners that they've produced. Um, there have been many times where City have got a result and everyone's looked at Arsenal and thought, can they match it? Can they do it? And they've gone on and done it. And I think actually, if you look at Anfield, you look at West Ham, I think the errors came when it was almost too easy. Um which sounds crazy, doesn't it? But I think mm. there is an element of that. I think that the, the the pressure has brought a sort of laser focus to, to a lot of what we've done. Um, and the eye maybe has just gone off the ball a little bit in those games. It's so frustrating because the, the, the prize is so great potentially um, and the points are so costly to drop. But I think he makes a good point there. And... and who knows how they'll fare at the Etihad, but I think they will be, I think they will, I think they will feel good enough to go there and get something. Um, I think they felt that in the home game and in the first half, they were the superior team. Uh, mm. They just, you know, were undone by mistakes and maybe not taking their chances. Um, but I think they, they will approach the Etihad with less fear than maybe we as supporters will. And it may help them in some crazy way. That's what we've got to hope for anyway. Yeah. I mean, we had another question from Dan lab zero one who said, um, do you think this result might help? I think he's talking about the West Ham game. James mentioned a few weeks ago about uh, the issue when the team doesn't know whether to go for a win or play it safe. So does today's result now actually make our minds up for City away and we have to go for it all guns blazing? I hope so. And look, you know, um, it's not to sort of justify points drop, but it does... It does remove the margin for error, which is, you know, on the one hand, you don't have your safety net. On the other there's no lack of clarity about what you need to do and how you need to do it. No, and I think if we go to City with this back four <laughs> or anything like it and with this kind of form and defending, that makes up our mind too. Our best chance of getting something at City is our attacking threat and we probably have to go there and score uh, mm. if we're to get something. And yeah, maybe this sort of crystallises that. Um, do, I, mean, I think do you mind know, we're looking for the silver lining oh. here. <laughs> but yeah, well, that's it. We're desperately. Um, there was another question here from uh, Jmart91. We've talked a lot about Saliba and Zinchenko. Um, he says, I feel the last two games have shown how much we miss Tommy Asu. <laughs> Tommy Asu, rather. Uh, ben White seems to struggle at right back for 90 minutes. He, he could also cover all the defensive bases. And, you know, there were times this season when Zinchenko wasn't available and Tommy Asu was the guy who started at left back, not Kieran Tierney. Yeah, I, I've said it before. I think Tommy Asu is the fifth defender in the back four. And I think there's almost any player who came out of it, he might be the next to step in. Um, so to lose him and Saliba at the same time, it's kind of a compound blow, isn't it? Mm. Um, uh, yeah, he is missed. And suddenly we look like we don't have, you know, the reserves of depth and quality at the back, which I, I don't really think is accurate. We just lost two players to injury at the same time. Um, would you, I mean, there was a few questions to this effect, but 
would you give any thought to changing the centre backs? Like, would you consider any of the sort of uh, moving Ben White into centre back scenarios that that are out there? The difficulty is we don't have a right back then. Yeah. Um, ben White has been one of the best in the Premier League this season. So I know he can play at centre-back and there must be a temptation, but you don't have another right-back. This is where I think the Tommy Asu injury has been so um, impactful because, you know, he he is the perfect guy. If you want to move Ben White and play him ahead of Rob Holding, then you've got Tommy Asu. Um, similarly, as I just mentioned, with, with regards left-back, I don't know, I just... I just don't think there's quite the balance there to be able to do that. We do have another another centre half, but he's a left-footed centre half, Kivior. Um, and I, you know, we've had this conversation and this discussion time and time again about how you never really see two left-footed centre halves start together. Um, yeah. Even though you see two right-footed centre halves start together all the time, I don't know what it is exactly, but you never see it. So I don't think I would change Ben White because actually. You know, even if you think back to when we were good against West Ham, he's a guy who got an assist for the Gabriel Jesus goal, the way he overlaps. He's, you know, scored a few goals. So I think what he does at right back is too effective to produce the kind of imbalance that we would get. Like, who who is the right back? I've seen, you know, Rule Walters on the bench, but I just yeah. don't know about using a, a, a young guy at right back, and I, I, I'm not sure that that's exactly where he plays anyway. No, I mean, I think, yeah, he, he, I think he plays plenty of football at right back, but, you know, the inexperience is a, a big factor there. The other one is Partey, isn't it, that people have mentioned, but then you're no. taking him out of the midfield. Um, Plus, he can't, do, he can't do 90 minutes in a game. So, there's, you know, in midfield, I'm not saying it's easier to play midfield than right back, but there's a lot of ground to cover up and down that wing. I just don't know that Partey could play 90 minutes in, in that position if he can't play 90 minutes in midfield. Very true, yeah. I don't know if his hamstrings are up to the task. So... I think it kind of it we you know we have what we have at the moment at the back. Um, I'm just trying to think if there's some sort of out of the box solution that that we're not discussing, but I don't think so. And I think that's unfortunate because you know if you lose Saliba, you, but you've got Tommy Asu there, it's kind mm. of a plug and play replacement. Even if you swap in with White, um, and Holding's done okay. You know, like. I, I, I think he's done all right in the majority of the games that he's had to play. Uh, and when you have a long league season, sometimes you're called upon to field players who wouldn't be in your first eleven. You'd be amazed how many games uh, you know certain players played for the Invincibles during that campaign. I think Pascal Segar, yeah. uh, Jeremy Alladier, you know, people who weren't the most celebrated uh, individuals in that squad made significant contributions. Um, I do think that certain opponents will target him. Like there was a moment in the first half where it wasn't there, where he made that foul on the edge of the box because Antonio sort of ran outside him in the channels. And I do Mm. just think he struggles to live with that Um, in a way that Saliba, you know, doesn't generally, he's been much more secure in those scenarios. Yeah. You think about Saliba's best moments or the the eye-catching moments or the ones where 
in those situations, he does a little shimmy, takes a turn and, and you know, wanders off with the ball while the other guy's standing yeah. there going, what the fuck happened? And yeah. there's no slide on Rob Holding to say he can't do that. But uh, I did have a question here about uh, something like this. Teta 2020 on the Discord. He said, I noticed that teams are using the long ball strategy to bypass our midfield. Man City had success with this in the narrow victory as of at Liverpool and West Ham. How much of a concern is this and what tactics could be employed to negate this issue? Um, I'm not saying West Ham are kind of kick and rush, but there is an element of that to the way that they play under David Moyes. You know, is get it up there, you know, get your throw-ins, get your set pieces, get your corners and see what you can do. Yeah, they're direct and it makes sense. I mean, if I had the ball as an opposition manager with my goalkeeper and I was looking up and I saw Gabriel Martinelli and Gabriel Jesus charging at me, I'd think, right, well, let's go to the top of that, please. Let's not try and play mm-hmm. through it because they're two of the best pressing forwards. You had Martin Odegaard, Bakaya Saka's no slouch either on the pressing front, but Odegaard's brilliant, I think. It's very, very difficult to play past, to play through. So... I think it's partly just facility, you know, consequence of how good we are um, with our shape and with our pressure that people are going over the top. I'm trying to think if there's more that we could do in those scenarios. Maybe, you know, maybe we commit too many forward and so we've got less people to kind of pick up the second balls. I think that's something City did very well in the game at the Emirates. They went long Mm. through Edison, but then they, you know, they picked up so many second balls with the likes of kind of Grealish and and I forget who played, but maybe Gundogan and others. Um, That's a consideration. You know, Partey is often in those areas mopping up on his own and you can outnumber him. But, um, yeah, I think it's just something we've got to live with. And to be honest, some of the more direct stuff actually suits Rob Holding. So that's not all bad necessarily for us at the present point in time. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I think think I'm sort of – I've done a lot of my questions. Have you got a couple more there? Uh, Maybe I've got a couple more here. Uh, Joe, who's at Red and White 11. Good afternoon, fellas. Who takes our next penalty? I think Saka for me. I think still mm-hmm. Saka. What about you? Yeah, Saka. I think, you know, most players miss penalties. Even Ivan Tony missed a penalty the other week, and he never misses. Mm. Um, Mo Salah so missed it, the other week, you may have noticed, well, against us. Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, we've seen really good players miss penalties in the past. You know, I I saw a lot of people talking, or there were some comments on, on Arsplug News anyway, about, you know, why didn't Jesus take it? Why didn't he pull rank as the senior guy, as the the main striker, et cetera, et cetera. But like this shit is decided before the team goes out. It's decided on the training ground who takes a penalty. If we get one, who's taking it? And it's Saka. He is the number one penalty taker. And I think that will continue to be the case unless, you know, he has a a terrible run. But, um, you know, I would back him to respond really quickly. You know, he missed a... is there a more high stakes penalty to miss than one which could win your country a, a competition, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he's come back from that. And I think he will come back from this. I think he's very disappointed. Obviously he apologized. I don't think he needs to apologize, you know, but I, I would like, if we got a penalty on Friday night and it came down to it, I'd be happy for, for Saka to take it. So if we get one at the Etihad. Yeah, he'll score it. <laughs> he'll score it. Don't worry. 
Okay. I'm feeling good about his penalty taking, even though he missed that one. Uh, that yesterday. would be a good moment. I mean, it was a real aberration yesterday. Anyone can have a penalty saved, you know. It, mm. That can happen. Um, not if you're up against Aaron Ramsdale, but other goalkeepers, that can happen. <laughs> and uh, uh, he, yeah, yesterday was a, a strange one. To go that far wide, it's a... Mm. Uh, you know, it's a miss hit, really. Um, yeah, it just shows think, the best players can get it wrong. Yeah, you know, exactly. And I think he'll be desperate to put it right. I think I hope I hope he gets one soon. You know, and puts that behind him again. Mm. Um, and there were plenty of other ways Arsenal could have won that match. You know, had Arsenal scored that goal and got that lifeline, I think it would have been a bit of a lifeline. I'm not sure we deserved that penalty at that point in the game. Um, it was a gift. And we passed it up, but mm. um, it's not the only reason we didn't win. We had, there were plenty of other routes to us winning that match that we did not take. Yeah. I mean, I do think, you know, Saka has been so good this season. Maybe the last couple of weeks, he hasn't quite been at his best. Um, yeah. But we've seen yeah. such a, a, a strength of character from him in adverse moments. And even to just do what he does at, at his age is, is incredible. So maybe a couple of quiet performances and maybe that moment might be a kind of, uh, it sounds a bit dramatic to say rock bottom, but, you know, he might look at that and think, okay, I've got to really respond in the next game. And if he was to bang in a couple of goals against Southampton, you wouldn't be at all surprised, would you? No. No, not at all. All right. Well, look, uh, I don't know that my voice can hold up anymore. uh, Talking. You've done well. Thank you. You've done well. Soldiered through bravely against all the odds uh, to produce a podcast. So, look, I'm I'm conscious of the time difference here as well uh, because only half nine is coming up to half nine here in New York, but uh, it's later than that. So, I want to get the podcast out for for everyone who normally expects it at a, a reasonable time. Um. Welcome back, James. Good to have you back on. And um, hopefully uh, we're talking about a happier set of circumstances next time we talk. Um, yes. To you guys. So. And, yeah. and thank you, everyone, by the way, for all the well wishes and uh, messages I had about the birth of my son. I was very, very touched. So thank you so much for that. All right. Well, look, um, take it easy to everybody who's uh, listened. Hopefully uh, we're talking about happier things next time. Um I'll talk to you when I get back to Dublin. For now, take it easy and we'll catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. 
Code PROGRAM.